As you make your way back to your seats, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. And because of various schedule factors, it was four weeks ago that we started this chapter. So if I feel a bit rusty, you probably don't necessarily remember exactly what we talked about. Maybe you do. Maybe you had notes. Maybe you've reviewed it this week. Good for you. But I'm going to do a little bit more review than normal just to lay the groundwork again. This chapter is the longest teaching of Jesus found in the Gospel of Mark. And it is commonly called the Olivet Discourse because he went to the Mount of Olives across from the temple. They could actually look at the temple probably from where they were standing or sitting. And he taught this information to his disciples. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark cover most of the same information. Luke has a little bit different material. But obviously we're focused, while we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, we're focused on what Mark recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that Jesus is predicting the destruction of that temple. And that raised a question for the disciples. When is this going to happen? What is the sign of this? And Jesus continued into this long teaching, this discourse about the end times. To be more specific, Jesus' disciples asked two questions, and we covered them last time. Mark 13, verse 4 says, Tell us, here's the first question, when will these things be? And number two, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So Jesus' response, this sermon that Jesus preached, this teaching that he gave, we're breaking out into three separate sermons. Overall, I think that's to your advantage so that you're not sitting here for an hour and a half or two. But we're covering it one section at a time. And what he's doing here, he's answering their questions, and he answers the second one first. He, he's leading up to the sign. And we'll talk more about it next time, because ultimately the sign is when everything else goes black and all we see is Jesus coming. That's the second coming. But what leads up to that is the seven-year tribulation. And we, we are focused today in this section on the second half, the three-and-a-half-year period we commonly call the Great Tribulation that leads up to the second coming. So with that little bit of groundwork, I'll offer some more in a moment, I'd like to invite you to stand. Hopefully you've found your place. And I'm going to read for us Mark chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days." Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. We'll stop there for right now, but I'd invite you to pray with me, please. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you are in control of all things, all things today and all things to the end of the age. Lord, we confess that this chapter, this passage, this teaching can be a little difficult, but we ask for your help because we know that you are the one, Holy Spirit, who grants understanding to our hearts, and we ask you to do that this morning. You are the one, Holy Spirit, who penned these words through Mark and allowed us to have translated into English your very word. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us hearts ready to receive the engrafted word today. That you would give us ears to hear, that we would be alert, that we would pay attention to what you are showing us about yourself, about ourselves, about the world around us through this text this morning. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to teach accurately, to teach boldly, to teach clearly. that you would accomplish the purpose of your word this morning through me and through all of us in hearing it. And Lord, may we do what you show us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We talked last time we were in this passage about the debate some people have over this chapter. Is Jesus talking only about what happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Was it all fulfilled in first century, all in the past? Or is Jesus talking about something at the end of the age, the tribulation and the second coming? Or is it both? I personally believe that it is both. I think there are limitations if you try to take one or the other. I believe that in this case, as with other prophecies, there is a near and immediate or almost immediate Fulfillment, we might describe that as a partial fulfillment. And then, in this case, there's also an end times fulfillment, a complete fulfillment. The key word for this section as well, same as last time, is tribulation. What is the tribulation? Well, I I gave you a simple diagram, and this is as simple as I could make it, and hopefully you can see it pretty well. But this is what I believe. You don't have to believe exactly this way in order to be saved. You don't even have to believe exactly this way to be part of our church family. But this is what I personally believe the order is for the end times events. There will be a rapture of the church. Jesus will come in the clouds. He will call, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive and here on earth living will be raised to meet him in the air. In the air, in the clouds are the key phrases there. That begins a tribulation period of seven years. The first half of it is three and a half years. That's half of seven. The second half is more properly called the Great Tribulation. That is the three and a half years that lead from the middle, where we're picking it up today, to the end. The end of the seven-year tribulation is when Jesus Christ comes back physically, bodily, to the earth, not just in the clouds, but to the earth, and he will, be, he will clean house, if you will, and he will then reign for a literal thousand-year millennium. That's what I believe. I'm letting you know that at the outset. That's how I'm going to interpret this chapter. 
That's how we interpreted Revelation when we went through that book. So the key word is tribulation, and the tribulation is a seven-year period the way we're using it here. It's the tribulation period, and we're going to look at the second half of it today. So uh, a little bit of an outline, if you will. We talked about this last time. We have the beginning, the middle, the end. I actually tweaked this a little bit today to, to be more clear. The second coming is what we'll cover next time in verses 24 to 27, and then we'll finish the rest of the chapter as well. But the tribulation has a beginning. That's verses 5 to 13, a middle, verses 14 to 18, and an end, verses 19 to 23. What's going on? What, what is happening to the church, for example? I could easily preach an entire sermon and have before on what's going on with the church, but I believe that the church will be raptured, like I showed you on that diagram a minute ago, raptured by Christ, taken to heaven prior to the beginning of the tribulation, before the seven years. That, in my thinking, is the next event on the prophetic calendar, and it could happen at any time. It could happen before I finish this sermon, and you can say again, amen, that's right. It could. It's imminent. We don't know. It could happen today, next week, next month, next year. We've been anticipating it for 2,000 years. We, the church. At the end of the tribulation, those saints that have been raptured, the church, the bride of Christ, will be brought back to reign with him. That's in Revelation 19 and 20. So what begins this seven-year period? I just said that I believe the rapture takes place, but here on earth, what's going on? What begins it? And to try to be sensitive to time instead of trying to explain it, I'm going to read you a paragraph out of Warren Wiersbe's commentary because I thought that he explained it very well. So here we go. What signals the beginning of this awful seven-year period? The signing of a covenant between the nation of Israel and the prince that shall come. That's how the Antichrist is described in Daniel chapter 9. This prince is the coming world dictator we usually call, here it is, the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, he's called the Beast. That's Revelation 13 and 14. And he will agree to protect Israel from her many enemies for seven years. And he will even allow the Jews to rebuild their temple and restore their ancient sacrifices. The Jews rejected their true Messiah, but they will accept this false Messiah. However, after three and a half years, Antichrist will break this covenant, invade the temple, set up his own image, and force the world to worship Satan. You can read more about that in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Revelation 13. This is Daniel's abomination of desolation. That's a phrase that you see in Thessalonians and in Daniel and here in Mark and also in the parallel in Matthew. And it will usher in the last half of the tribulation period known as the time of I've said it a couple times already this morning, the Great Tribulation. I'm going to offer you the same two ideas as I did in the first section of this a few weeks ago. That is, number one, God is in control, and number two, God keeps his promises. Why does that matter? I thought we were talking about the tribulation. We are. I thought we were talking about end times events. We are. God is in control. This isn't spinning out of control beyond his ability, and he's just not sure what he's going to do. This is his plan. This is plan A, folks. This is the way God designed it to end. When I say God keeps his promises, he keeps all his promises. But the specific one I'm referring to here, the promise that he will keep is that he's coming back, folks. 
when those apostles and others saw him ascend to his father, those angels said, he will come back in like manner. He will come back the same way. He will come back down from the clouds to the earth. And that has not happened yet. We'll talk more about it next time. There are lots of groups that have predicted it'll be this date or that date. Or they said, oh, he already came back. No, we are still waiting. But we are waiting in hope because God keeps his promises. So those are the two main ideas. And if there's any key verse that I would offer you, it's actually the last one that I read this morning. Mark 13, 23. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Listen. Pay attention. Watch. Beware. Be on your guard because I've told you this ahead of time. That's what Jesus is saying. And as I said last time, Jesus didn't tell us this so that we could set dates or try to figure every little detail out. We can't. He told us so that we would be ready. And part of our application this morning is going to be, what does that mean to be ready for his return? Let's go back, please, to verse 14 and work our way through this. Verse 14 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, and then in parentheses, probably in most of your translations, let the reader understand. So what is this abomination of desolation? I read it in that quote a moment ago, but I would consider it to be more of a who than a what. What do you mean by that? Well, this refers to both a person and an action. The abomination of desolation, here's another word, it's a desecration of the temple. It is defiling the temple in a way that it can't be used for worship any longer. And this, is not, this will not be the first time it has happened. I'm going to offer you three. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and looted the temple. He stole stuff from it. He defiled it. And for a long time, they weren't there, most of them, to worship in it, but they, they weren't able to. They had to build a new temple when they returned. So that was the first time. The second time, and this may be specifically what Jesus is referring to, in 168 or 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the sacred temple altar. He came in, and in order to anger the Jews, and it worked, the time of the Maccabees, the Maccabean Wars, he came in, and he, what could be more defiling than swine than a pig and that is what he came in and sacrificed on their altar to defile it so that they could no longer use it so that's happened and then ad 70 the roman general titus they came in they sacked jerusalem after a long siege they came in the temple was burnt and history tells us that the roman general titus placed an idol on the site of the burned out temple after the destruction of jerusalem and so far, there's never been another temple rebuilt. But this is the future. This is the ultimate fulfillment of this phrase of abomination of desolation. This is the Antichrist who halfway through the tribulation will break his covenant, as I mentioned a minute ago, and he will come into the temple, set up an idol to himself, and demand that he be worshipped. He declares himself to be God is what Thessalonians tells us. Proving to himself, I love the wording of, I think it's 1 Thessalonians, proving himself to himself that he is God. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians, it's 2.4. And it doesn't go well for those who refuse to worship him. 
They will be persecuted, and many of them will be martyred. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, or if you have an ESV, it'll say standing where he ought not. Matthew 24, 15 is the parallel, and it says the holy place. What are we talking about? We're talking about a temple. What does this tell us? That there will be a temple rebuilt. There will be sacrifice reestablished. Starting at the beginning of this seven-year period, the first half, sacrifice will be reestablished at the rebuilt temple. And then we have what in my translation is in parentheses, and it's not in red letters, and probably you have something similar. Let the reader understand. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is sharing this information in this next section, not for the purpose of those listening to him right then, not the disciples and others who were hanging out with him. He is writing to a specific group of people in the future. Let the reader, those who will read this, will understand it as it happens in the future. He wants them to be prepared. As we look through this, we can see that Jesus is concerned for his disciples when these events start taking place. He is concerned for his chosen people, the nation of Israel. Let's continue. I'm halfway through verse 14. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And he adds, pray that your flight may not be in winter. That word for flee to the mountains, flee, it's related to the word for fugitive in our language. This is somebody who's on the run in order to escape danger. So think about this for a moment. Hopefully... You have thought about it before. What if there were a fire in your house at night? What provisions have you made for you or you and your spouse or you and your kids? How are you going to get out? What is your escape route? If you're on the second floor, how are you going to get out? What window are you going to try to lower yourself from? What's it going to look like? Hopefully you've thought this through. Hopefully you've talked about this as a family. If not, you have a homework assignment today. You should go talk about this. But if, if you know your route... Is there something that you would be trying to grab or would you just run out? Because that's what's being described here. Jesus is telling those who will read this later, when this happens, when this goes down in the way I'm predicting, run. Beat it. Go. Do not go back for anything else. That's the message that Jesus is giving right here. When it says, don't go down into the house, it was common, as we know from other passages, for them to be on the housetop, on the rooftop, it, it was a place to sleep, to, to hang out. And usually there was a stairway on the outside of the house. So don't even go back into the house, just go. If you hear that this has happened, the abomination desolation, go. Same thing with clothes. It's the outer cloak. Don't go back to get your jacket. Don't go back to get, ladies, your purse or your cell phone or anything else. Just go, get out, go. And then he has this statement about pregnant and nursing babies. At the very least, it's telling us that our Savior has compassion for women who are expecting children or who have children who are nursing. That's at the very least. But there also may be a reference. As we look at Hosea, for example, this may be a bit of a warning because there are certainly times in history, things we can read in the Old Testament and even the beginning of the New Testament, in which women who were pregnant were violently treated and their babies were killed.
We can read of times of the Exodus and others where babies were killed, thrown in the river. It may be that type of situation. I don't know. Pray that it not be in winter. Well, Israel has a rainy season, and at that point, the streams can make it impossible to cross. More than that, if it's in the wintertime, there aren't going to be crops in the fields for you to be able to grab something to eat on the way. Matthew adds, pray that it not be on the Sabbath, because there were limitations. And even to this day, there are limitations of being able to get around Israel on the Sabbath day because they're following the Sabbath and can do no work. Now, I'd like to share with you briefly what I think are two misunderstandings of this passage at this point. I touched on it earlier. There are some people who believe that all of this was fulfilled in 70 A.D., and all of these warnings are to the people when Rome was coming in, Rome was coming into Jerusalem to take over. And I think there's an element of truth. There are people, Israelites, who followed this advice. As soon as that starts, we're going to run. We're going to get out. We're going to go into exile somewhere else. So there is a partial fulfillment, I believe. But that's not the end of this. This is talking about a future time. We're going to see later in the passage, it's a time of, Persecution is a time of tribulation that has never happened before. What's more, as we get into the end of this chapter, it says that at the end of this time of tribulation, Jesus will come back. It's the second coming. Did that happen? No. That didn't happen 2,000 years ago when Rome invaded Jerusalem. So that's, that's one way I believe this has been misunderstood by some people. I believe that the ultimate fulfillment of what we're reading for Jesus from Jesus is written to a group of people who will be alive in Israel, talking about the Jewish people, at the time of the tribulation. Some people take this passage and they believe that all Christians, the entire church, will go through the tribulation. Now, there are people we're going to share heaven with who take that position. I'm not here to argue intensely or or diminish people who believe that. I'll share more next time, but I, I believe that there is a rapture of the church and it does take place before the tribulation starts. For sure before the great tribulation, but I personally believe it's before any of the seven years. But some people look at this and say, oh, these are warnings to the church. We, we need to pay attention here. We need to run. Well, again, it talks about Judea, people who are familiar with what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem. It talks about, I, I referred to Matthew, it talks about the Sabbath. So it seems to be a message to the Jewish people in this section. And I believe it has a future fulfillment. Now let's talk for a moment. I'd like you to keep your finger, keep a bookmark there in Mark and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I've mentioned multiple times this morning the rapture. Well, where does that come from? Where's, where's that in the Bible? Well, first off, you may be aware, the word rapture is not in any English translation I'm aware of. But it's related to this idea of being caught up, caught away, comes to us in the Latin, and that's where we get our word rapture. So that's why we talk about the rapture of the church, the catching away, the calling away. So let's read these verses. First Corinthians, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to start in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. This is one of the first letters that he wrote to the churches. 
And it seems to me that part of the reason he's writing this is that some of them may have been concerned that, okay, we're looking forward to the rapture. It could happen anytime. Paul taught us about this. We're eager for it to happen. What about the people who have already fallen asleep as, as a euphemism throughout the New Testament for those who have already died in Jesus? What about them? Does that give us an advantage over them because we get to be part of the rapture and they don't? So that may be what he's addressing here. I'm in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, here it is, those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed, go ahead of, those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Pay attention to verse 18. Therefore, what's that next word? comfort one another with these words. Why was it comforting to them? Well, if I'm correct, that's the concern he was addressing. What about those who have died in Christ? What's going to happen with them? That would bring comfort that, yes, they get to participate in the rapture, and and their bodies will be reunited with their spirits that have been with Jesus for however long. That's good news. That's comforting. And we'll look a little bit more at this next time but I also think there's comfort in the fact that that rapture is going to take place before the tribulation. So, well, I'll just leave it at that. I, I don't want to get too carried away. We'll talk about it next time. But I believe that that rapture that's described there happens before what we're reading Jesus predicting right now, that seven years. Now, conditions are going to get so bad during that great tribulation Everyone would die if the Lord didn't stop it at the proper time. We're in verse 19, back in Mark chapter 13. Mark 13, 19. For in those days there will be, here's our word, tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. This is it. This is the big one. I believe it is future. It is not what happened in AD 70 that he's talking about now. The great tribulation at the end of the age. Someone described those days in verse 24, they'll be unequaled in all of human history. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but in recent years, politicians, news media, weather forecasters really like that word unprecedented. Do you hear that one a lot? I hear it a lot. This will truly be unprecedented. That's what Jesus is saying. This tribulation will be different from anything that's ever happened, and there won't be anything like it after it occurs. But Habakkuk tells us that even in the midst of wrath, that God remembers mercy. Isn't that good news? Even in wrath, God remembers mercy. And here it tells us in verse 20 that he shortens the days. Here's verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. What does that mean? It means he's going to put an end point on it. And here he has that end point established. It's a seven-year tribulation. And the second half, the great tribulation, is three and a half years. And he will not let it go longer than that. Otherwise, no flesh, no human being would survive. But for the elect's sake, so we better know who that is. That term, the elect, is used of 
three different groups in scripture. Go back to Isaiah and the elect is God's chosen people, Israel. In 1 Peter 1, it's describing believers, the elect, the chosen ones. And here, I believe, in this context, Jesus is talking about what we would call tribulation saints. So these are those who are saved during the tribulation. Again, my belief, perhaps yours as well, is that the church has been raptured. So that segment of the elect isn't here on earth during these seven years. But people will be saved during that time. We have some big-time witnessing going on, 144,000, the two witnesses, an angel that's going to proclaim the everlasting gospel through the sky. Amazing stuff going on. God cares. Please don't forget that. As we read of these horrible things happening, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and he makes possible right now through you and me sharing the gospel with others. Sharing the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news about Jesus to all who will listen. These next couple of verses talk about another aspect of the tribulation period, and the word is deception. There is deceit, lies going on. Verbal ones and action ones. Words, signs, and wonders. Let's read about it. Verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Have you ever wondered why there are false Christs and false prophets trying to convince everybody Jesus is here. He's back. I came across one interesting idea about that this week, and that's that Satan uses these false Christs in an attempt to deceive the elect into leaving their places of refuge. Because what did he tell them? Run. Go to the mountains. And Satan and his false prophets are going to be saying, here he is. He's back in Judea. He's back in Jerusalem. He's over here. It's okay. He's come back. When in fact they are false prophets. They are false Christs. And it says here that they will perform signs and wonders. And the, the idea that popped into my head as I read that this week over and over is at the time of the Exodus. And Moses and Aaron came, and for the first few miracles, the, the rod that turned into a snake, and then the frogs and things like that, those first few things, the false prophets, I'll call them, the, the sorcerers in Egypt could keep up with and mimic and copy and counterfeit. And then it got to the point they could not any longer. Well, the warning for us in this today is that not every miracle is from God, folks. We need to be very careful our men's study that we just finished recently, we were talking about false teachers, particularly in 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And we have to be on our guard because it can look good. It can look miraculous, but it can be a false sign and wonder. How will we know? How will we know? Well, 
I said, I don't think we're going to be here. But if something like that were to happen right now, what did you say, Jeffrey? The word. We need to remember that the word of God is the final authority, not miracles. As I read my Bible, it seems to me that most signs and wonders are for the Jew. They're for the Jewish people. And there will be many signs and wonders during this time of the tribulation. Read the book of Revelation. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So whether the, the false prophet is up speaking words, compare them with Scripture. If he's acting in ways that seem miraculous or divine, compare it with Scripture. That's our final authority because our senses can be deceived. That's what it says here, to deceive if possible. It doesn't say that the elect will be deceived, but the motive of the false prophets, the motive ultimately of Satan, is to deceive even the elect, the chosen ones of God. Why? Because what is Satan's purpose? To damn them to hell. That's his goal, to keep people from turning and believing on the one true God and on his son Jesus whom he sent. And that brings us to our last verse for this morning. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Take heed. We've, we've seen this word translated twice already in our chapter. The word literally means to see but it's often used with keep your eyes open, beware, be watchful, pay attention. And this is the third time, so there have been three. Back in verse 5, it said, take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 9 said, watch out for yourselves, and now it just says, take heed. Jesus is not repeating himself because he can't think of anything else to say. He wants us to be watchful. He wants us to be on our guard. Even now and certainly in this time that he's predicting. So it is a warning as well as a prediction. Why does he want us to take heed? Why does he want us to be on guard and be alert? I'm going to offer you some ideas. David Guzik's commentary was helpful for this. But, but why? What's going on? Well, 1 John 3, 3 says that he who has this hope does what? Purifies himself. It should have a sanctifying effect on us to know that Jesus is coming. I need to be ready. What does that look like? Well, it's going to sanctify me. I'm going to be aware. I, I'm not going to allow unconfessed sin and habitual sin be part of my life. I'm going to, by God's grace, repent, confess, forsake, leave it behind. One of the most common words as I read study Bibles and commentaries this week was the word urgent or urgency. There is a sense of urgency here. We used to talk about that at Nordstrom for customer service. There needs to be a sense of urgency. I'm going to take care of your issue. Well, we need a sense of urgency because there's a much more important issue at stake, isn't there? The salvation of souls. At the school I went to in college, we used to repeat a statement. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. We need to have a heart. We need to have a burden for people around us. 
When was the last time you had a gospel conversation? When was the last time you even thought to pray for a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate? I'm talking to myself too here. We've, we've got to be about his business. It also gives us the right perspective on the things of this world. Guys, it's all going to burn. Peter writes in his second epistle that the elements will burn with a fervent heat. Knowing that we are, again, Peter, strangers and pilgrims gives us the right perspective on the things, the stuff, the schedules of the world around us. Is social media going to matter at the end of the age? I don't think so. Is the news or sports or weather of the day going to matter? I don't think so. Is how much you made in 2023 going to matter in eternity? I don't think so. What you did with it will matter. We're supposed to be good stewards. So a loosening of the material stuff around us should be a right response that we need to be ready. Take heed, I have told you beforehand. He's doing this on purpose. He's doing it for his disciples there. He's doing it for us now, and he's certainly doing it for the people during the time of their tribulation. Main points for this morning. God is in control. God keeps his promises. This is not chaotic. This is not spinning out of control. He's got this. And he's got us. But he is coming, folks. He keeps all his promises. I listened to a sermon this week by Greg Mazak, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is how he summed this up. Be confident. The Lord always keeps his word. Be comforted. The Lord is in control. And be ready. The Lord is coming back. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is God's word that we have been studying together for the past 40 minutes or whatever. It's his word, so I believe that he has spoken something to each one of us. What is he speaking to you? I'm not trying to be mystical. I'm certainly not trying to guilt anybody into anything. But if he has spoken to you this morning and there's something specific, the Holy Spirit has said, this is your next step. This is what you need to do this week. Obey. Do it. Talk to him about it right now. Is there a person in your life that you're burdened for? I need to share the gospel with this person this week. Have you thought, I'm not ready for Jesus to return right now because there's sin in my life and I've been allowing it to remain. I'm confessing and forsaking that right now. Maybe he's pointed out some materialism in our hearts that we're too stuck on the things of this world. Whatever it may be, it may be something totally different. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but he is here with us 
And I trust that he's speaking to you in your heart and that you're responding in obedience to him. Our Father, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts. We need it. We can do nothing without you. And so we ask that you would give us grace to believe. Give us grace to obey. Give us grace to respond in the right way to what you're leading in each of our lives this day. Lord, give us a burden for those around us. Give us a loose hold for the things in our lives, the material possessions. And Lord, give us a hatred for sin. We can't do any of these things on our own, but we ask you, Lord, for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.